Welcome to episode number 15 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring screenwriters Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski of the new film Big Eyes, directed by Tim Burton and starring Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz, coming to theaters on December 25th. Big Eyes tells the story of artist Margaret Keane, whose enigmatic paintings of waifs with big eyes became a phenomenal success in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Unfortunately, Margaret's husband Walter Keane took credit for the paintings and became a media sensation. The film chronicles Walter and Margaret's tumultuous marriage as well as their business relationship and the eventual legal battle that would take place when Margaret decided to reclaim credit for the paintings and rediscover her identity as an artist. We'll also discuss Scott and Larry's new miniseries, chronicling the trial of O.J. Simpson in the early 1990s, and their collaboration with director Milos Forman, who they worked with on both Man on the Moon and The People vs. Larry Flint. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And you can follow us on Twitter for the latest updates at Jog Road. And now we join screenwriters Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski as they discuss the 10-year journey behind the making of Big Eyes. So I read uh, the LA Times article uh, that both of you wrote about the journey to get Big Eyes, you know, made. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, 10 years, it's really incredible. Um, I was wondering what the point was in that process, the very, very beginning where you knew that this was worth such a long journey and putting in that hard work. Um, I think it was, uh, you know... We contemplate a lot of people, you know, in terms of whether they're worthy of, of having a biography done. And um, uh, it, it sounds silly to say this, but sometimes it's just a gut thing where you say, wait a second, I, I see this movie. And I think almost right from the very beginning, when Scott read uh, read about them in this little two-page thing in the Encyclopedia of Bad Taste, you sort of just talking aloud that day, you almost could see a third a three act structure you know you knew that that that, that court thing and you, you you even though we didn't know much of the facts you actually could sort of you know step back and understand what that movie could be and so and then we started doing research and the more research we we did the more we discovered what a rich what rich characters these people were but, but your question in terms of why did we why or how did we commit to this journey that went on forever. I believe you wrote it on spec, is that right? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No. no, we never got... I'm not sure we have been paid. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we didn't get paid for 10 years. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was always money going out, actually, because we were covering... Yeah. We were covering the rights. We wanted to always control it. But, but we... we if, if we... If you, if, you, if, if you had come back, you know, in a little time capsule from the future and told us in 2003, guys, you'll get this movie made in 2014... We probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> you know, Speak for yourself. Well, no, we we perceived correct that it was going to be an easy movie to make because we thought, okay, she's a great part, he's a great part. We we're going to direct it. It was pretty contained. It's not a lot of locations, and we thought, you know what, you'll get two great actors. Two great actors will get you financing, and la di da, there we go, and. Um, and and we also and, and we got fooled by a lot of encouragement because we always had a lot of incoming phone calls from actors agents a lot of actresses and actors were interested in these two parts 
we always had a lot of top drawer crew, you know, people with shelves of Oscars, you know, in terms of DPs and costumers. This is at uh, the point when you two were planning on. Yeah, correct, correct. correct. And this, yeah. this was for years and years and years. All, all these people, I mean, would keep coming in and asking to meet with us and then say, I will work on your movie for scale because I love this material. Mm. And, and then the first time we tried to put together the movie, it actually seemed to, it, it, it looked like it came together, all things, all things considered, relatively easily. And we thought we had $12 million and actors and a crew and we thought we were ready to go. And then it all collapsed. But that initial false encouragement tricked us into thinking... Okay, well, we'll just put the pieces back together. Oh, we just lost that actress, but fine, we'll get another one. And oh, we just lost a DP, we'll get another one. And we'll get a new Walter. Oh, the financier just turned out to be a flake. Okay, fine, he's gone. Oh, but this new guy just showed up, and now he wants to pay for the movie. So it felt like we could put it together, but then this uh, sort of, it sort of paralleled kind of like the uh, attrition of the indie marketplace in the last 10 years, whereas, you know, Back in the early 2000s, you could get a lot more money to, to make any kind of movies because Fox Searchlight and Focus and, and Weinsteins, I mean, they were all making a lot more movies. Sure. Paramount Vantage. Paramount Vantage. I mean, yeah. they all, every, every major had a mini major. Yeah, and uh, it's hard to remember them because a, a whole bunch of them have. Which one? Universal. There was the other. There was the Polygram. Was that part of? It? Yeah, yeah. Well, this technically still. Around, I mean, I mean there, the genre yeah. pictures. There were there were a lot. Oh, oh, oh who was the uh, the uh, the uh, was he a schmata business guy? The Sidney <laughs> Kimmel. Yes, yeah, well, he's still around. Is he, oh, yeah, but he, but he was crash and yeah, but he, he was he was making yeah. a lot of movies, right? And he and he's 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 really coming back. But anyway, there was a lot more money for art house kind of movies back then, and you could get more money for your budgets mm-hmm. and. Because our movie was a period piece, uh, we always needed a certain level of money just to have those cars and costumes and, and wigs, just to sell the, sell it, the era. And the movie was about art, so it always it had to have a certain artistic look to it. You could you couldn't make this movie for like two million dollars. So there are certain kind of independent movies where you can just like you know get get someone's house and, 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 and a camera and a couple actors and go do it. But we we mistakenly believed in the very beginning that that's kind of what we wrote. We wrote a two hander. Uh, we, we, we were wrong. And, yeah, and that mm-hmm. we we were overlooking. Well, okay, we we always had to have three days in San Francisco. We always had to have a few days in Hawaii. I mean, yeah. there was a certain scope. That was necessary, but each time we would reapproach the movie, it, it, it would take another financial whack, and it would go from twelve to ten to eight to seven to six and a half. And we, after each one of these passes would collapse, we would sort of look at each other like, "Oh my God, do we really want to do this again?" And you know, and then it's like, "Okay, well, we sort of have to pay the bills, and we've got mortgages, and we've got families." And maybe we need to take a paying job right now, but oh wait, we, now we've got this a new great actress who wants to play the part, but she's only available to shoot in May. Okay, let's try to put the movie together again. Yeah. And so we go sink another two months into that new version instead of taking a job where we can actually support ourselves. So it's really the reality of being you know writers for hire, but at the same yes. time you're doing this project on Correct. the side. Yes, really your passion. Correct. But the right. side project was sort of turning into our lives for years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it, it, it got very delusional. And, and self-destructive times just because we would not let it go. Right. But I would say that, you know, back to your original question, it was really stumbling onto these these two characters. These two characters that we just felt like they, they deserved a movie, even though they'd sort of been kind of overlooked by, by most of regular society. And particularly Walter Keane 
was such a flamboyant, crazy personality that the more we read this, the more juicy you know you could see his part being. I mean, he was he was one of our kind of guys. Whether you know you could, like Larry Flynn or, or Ed Wood or, or, or Andy Kaufman, where these guys who sort of can hold court and kind of talk about themselves in the third person and all that kind of thing. Uh, what the challenge for us and what was kind of cool and I think got us really excited was the idea of making that guy. Uh, uh, the antagonist instead of the protagonist, which is he's always they always were that guy was always been the front and center of our movies. Where in this movie he would he was going to be uh, the the guy who um, who was, was was causing our lead character, which was Margaret. Yeah. You know all her all her problems. What uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One, one last one last response to your question. We also had this this obligation to Margaret, right? And. For all these years, this is the first time we had ever sought out somebody and acquired their life rights ourselves. All of our other scripts, I mean, we've, we've had movies made we've, and we've had movies that didn't get made. But all of our other scripts were either done where we did not need the rights or... A deceased individual. Like right, yeah, correct. Deceased or, or public figures. Yeah. Uh, or it was somebody bringing us a rights package saying, are you guys interested in this subject matter? And we said yes. Um, with this one, we tracked down Margaret. We got her rights. We we did it out of our own pockets, and we formed a, rela- a relationship with her. And you know, and, and she was an elderly lady when we met her eleven years ago, and she's a much older lady now. And so each one of these false starts, we call her up and we say, "Guess what? We're gonna be we're gonna be shooting in Salt Lake City in June. It's really exciting." And oh wow, I'm so happy. Who's in this version? You know. And, <laughs> And then it would all, you know, go to hell, and then we'd have to color it with the bad news. And and so I, I think that might have forced us to kind of keep going just because we felt bad. Uh, and, and that, you know, we didn't want to disappoint her on the level of having to call her and saying, you know what, Margaret, we're just going to give up. Right. Forget it. It's just like, not all scripts get made in Hollywood. Most scripts don't get made in Hollywood, and this is going to be one of those... That ends up in a drawer. We're sorry. I was curious, uh, the research that you did before ever meeting Margaret, um, how did that sort of experience change once you met her in terms of what you thought of the situation going in with Walter and the conflict that was there? Did any of your, did, did your point of view change at all? Oh, my, uh, great, a great deal. Because um, uh, uh, when we did all the research, we were finding um, out the public story. We were finding out the public story, uh, sort of what I was saying about earlier, about about this flamboyant guy Walter Keene. But because Margaret was uh, Margaret was always in the background, uh, she didn't she wasn't popping on the on the pages when we do research in a library, you know, because it was always be Walter, uh, you know, Walter and uh, you know holding court with Dick Nolan, like the the gossip columnist and things like that. That gossip column character came from these from these uh, this research because Walter was always uh, managing to find find himself. Uh, you know, in the middle of these, this, this sort of uh, uh, sweet smell of success, San Francisco scene, yeah. and so meeting Margaret, uh, that's where we really found out the personal story. That's where I think our, our POV changed a bit, where where we really found out that Margaret was going to be the heart and soul of this movie. Where you found out things like like about Margaret and her relationship with her daughter. And that's the kind of thing that wouldn't be put into the San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah. The fact that Margaret, you know, had to uh, actually lie to her daughter, and their daughter was the only thing that really meant anything to her in her yeah. life. And it's so, incredible to see in the film the the little circumstances where she may find out, or she kind of has yeah. hints that yeah. you mm-hmm. know she really is right. doing this. It really became the heart and soul of the film, and and even things like uh, those those scenes are, are just us dramatizing 
situation that went on for years. Were you able to interact at all with uh, Margaret's daughter? Oh, Jane? absolutely, Jane. Yeah. And sure, no, we, we get to be... We talked to Jane a little. But, yeah. But Margaret primarily. Uh, Jane and Margaret, actually, we spent last night with them, both. Uh, they were in town. The, the only um, the only big eye screening that, that we were going <coughs> to... We had with the real Amy Adams and the real Margaret Keene. They got to meet, and they also <laughs> was funny. The real Amy. The, uh, the funny thing was we actually had the, uh, Jane. Jane actually was there with the uh, the uh, uh, the woman, who, the girl who plays her as a young girl, Delaney Ray. Delaney Ray. That was fantastic. But you know, even stuff like that first meeting, we um, you know we had to find out things like what was it like when you first said. You know, you you'd go along with Walter in the scheme, you know, and 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 that we found out this was like when she said yes initially it was just he was selling paintings in the bottom of a nightclub, you know, she didn't know it was going to become the biggest selling art in America. So, but when she became part of the lie, she didn't know how to get herself out of it. And we said, well, what about your friends? Didn't your fr- didn't your friends know? Didn't your friends try to help you? And she's like, well, I had friends in the very beginning, but you know, I, I wasn't a good liar, so I didn't really want them to be around. I was worried they would know the truth. And Walter, you know, Walter would kind of berate them and push them away. And I just found it was almost easier for me to isolate myself. And so that made us create things like the the Christian Ritter character, who is not based on one particular person, but it's kind of there to stand in for for this uh, this 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 personal life that Margaret had that had to be stripped away, so that Walter King could isolate her and take advantage of her. Yeah, um, I was curious about the uh, the newspaper articles that you just showed me. Um, were a lot of those uh, the Danny Houston character, who's yes. a yes. columnist, yeah. were was that was that a real was that based on a real columnist? Yeah, yeah. Time, I mean, or? yeah, those columns I was showing you. Uh, again, we we had never heard of Dick Nolan. I mean, everybody's sort of uh, of Herb Cain. Yeah, well, so many people come to us and they're like, "Oh, that that character based on Herb Cain?" It's like, no, it was based on the guy who actually was Herb Cain's Herb, uh, competition. Herb Cain, was, Herb Cain was at one paper and Dick Nolan was at the other paper. Yeah. And so when we when we went uh, into the research library and started pulling up all the old microfiche, you know, and that, that's just a matter of going to the periodicals index and. And this is old school research. Yeah, because none of this stuff is online. And you know, and, and typing, and you know, you know, Walter Keene, Margaret Keene, nineteen fifty nine, and then you, you see what comes up, and then a lot, a lot of Dick Nolan columns start coming up. And then we start going, well, who is this guy? Because this guy just keeps writing about the Keens, and then he, and then he, he's clearly. I mean, Larry mentioned the Sweet Smell of Success. It's clearly old school gossip column nonsense, right. where he is planting Walter's name in the paper. Two three times a week, just for the sake of planting his name. Right. Where there's there's not a story, there's not an angle. It's yeah. just some silly joke of the day where he's managing to work Walter into the joke. Sure, or Walter Keene seen <laughs> eating at uh, this restaurant. Almost that like restaurant. Walter Winchell. Would yeah, correct, correct. He is one of those Walter Winchell guys. And, and, Every paper kind of had one of these guys. Irv Cupson at the in Chicago, or James Bacon was a guy in L.A. that kind of did that. He actually lasted a long, long time. Yeah, and, and we, I mean, we're, we're quite fond of those kind of old school guys and. Uh, um, I mean, anyone who's interested in it should go watch Sweet Smell Success because that that really gives you that vibe, and it's it's the exact same time period as our movie, and so we really sort of took from that the idea of sort of news newspaper stories kind of being created in the middle of jazz nightclubs with a lot of booze being served, and it's it's kind of a, it's a fun vibe, and and, and so uh, when we met Margaret, we, we absolutely one of our, our questions was. Um, What's the story with this guy? <laughs> Dick Nolan. She's like, oh yeah, he was a good friend of Walter's, and they would go out all the time. And it's like, okay, well, okay. you know, 
that seems like someone who should be a, a character in this movie. Well, what was funny is when we actually went up to San Francisco to do like on the ground research. Uh, you know, we thought we talked to some of the art people up in San Francisco, and the art people actually had no real connection to Walter Keene. You know, right. Walter, Walter was not a part of the art service. They, they didn't remember him. No, uh, but the people who did were bartenders and nightclub owners. You know, there's a, Walter really, you know, just wasn't a part of the regular art world. And and so he he made this kind of weird uh, end run around the whole, the whole thing by, like, selling it, selling his art in places that traditionally did not have art. But I mean, the art it, community sort of not shunned him but didn't really include him in correct, what was correct, going no, on. Correct, correct. Which I mean, forced him to do his own thing, which forced him to create a create a, a, a sort of a parallel system where, you know, he he wound up making his own galleries and putting out his own coffee table books and, and figuring out how to how to sell his paintings and, and and prints cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and so they could really be aimed at the common man. Yeah. And when you're aiming at the, this common man rather than the art world, you start realizing that the traditional gatekeepers no longer matter. You don't really need art critics. You know, and so what he what Walter kind of geniusly discovered that if you could get a painting to a celebrity and get a picture taken, that gets in the newspapers. And Dick Nolan would say, oh, the, you know, the painting was, you know, Natalie Wood just got a new Walter Keene painting. And so people would read that and say, oh my God, I want, I want to have the art that the Hollywood celebrities are getting. Yeah. So it, Walter really just it's kind of invented that sort of mass marketing of it. Um, and uh, it, it's a, when, you, when you see, like, you, when you open up an art magazine now and you see Kanye West at these art shows, you know, it's sort of like he, 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 he invented that. Art that. Basil. Like basil. Yeah. basil was one of those things where I was really nervous about showing our Actually, I, I'm not aware. What does Kanye West do at art shows? He just goes and I think he buys a lot of things and hangs yeah, out. Yeah, like Kim Kardashian, yeah. I think, shows up at those things. It's sort of like yeah, and where he, where he like he, you know, he, he did a whole thing with Murakami where they where they they oh, together right. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but going to Basil, where I thought, oh, I'm going to go show this movie to um, to a whole room of, of, of art critics and gallery owners, and what are they going to think? And but walking around that that Miami at the time is like it was clear that those. Those lines between high art and low art and art and commerce have just been totally blurred, and uh, you know, uh, and you can draw the line basically from Walter Keene to Andy Warhol to Peter Max to you know the obvious thing is Thomas Kincaid who would open up you know uh, galleries and malls, but you can also look at someone like Jeff Koons, you know, and 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 uh, you know I made uh, made this joke with Scott saying if Walter was alive today, he wouldn't even have to lie. He could just say, "Oh, someone else paints my paintings, and I sign my name to them, and this is my art, and it's a, it's almost like a performance." Yeah, it's almost uh, the quote at the beginning of the film, the Andy Warhol yeah, quote, really right. is applicable to that. Where it's like, if everybody likes it, then it must be good in a sense. <laughs> yeah, <where> it's like, <laughs> right. But that was also something that Margaret told us right off the bat, which 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 gave us insight was that she was like, for all the horrible things that Walter did to me, he was a genius at marketing. That uh, you know, she knows that her. Her paintings would still be, um, you know, in the park. She'd still be just selling paintings for a couple dollars a piece if it wasn't for somehow Walter figured out a way of shoving these uh, these things in front of America's eyes. Yeah. And uh, she totally, you know, he just he he just wasn't the artist though. That was the thing. That's that. Then that's where the moral dilemma came. He didn't understand what the problem was. He didn't understand why she was complaining. Who cares what name is at the bottom of the painting? You know, we're making money. Yeah, and uh, I was curious um, how Tim Burton came on to the project because you, know, you guys were really adamant about directing and um, uh, taking mean, on that. I mean, we, we, we've sort of had an ongoing shadow relationship with Tim since Ed Wood. Uh, it's, it's not really, you know, if you go to IMDb, it's hard to, it's hard to find it, but we, we, we'd had a number of projects we'd worked on with Tim where we didn't get credit or 
the, or the film fell apart. And, and um, so, so uh, we, were, we, we still had a relationship, and in 2009, after one of our many versions fell to pieces, we thought, you know what? We know Tim likes Margaret's art. Tim had actually commissioned some paintings back in the 90s from Margaret. He was a fan. He had flown up to San Francisco and met her. And so we thought, you know, and, and we thought, and then Tim, Tim would probably like this script with, with the whole idea of, of, of outsider art, primitive art. It's just something he finds really intriguing. And so we, we sort of wrote him a letter saying, uh, would, would, would you come aboard in some fashion as a producer or a presenter just to kind of help us put this movie together? And he said, sure, sure, sure. And uh, then we hit him up a few times over the years. Uh, if we were trying to hustle a new actor or a new actress and that person happened to be in Europe at the time and Tim lives in London and so we would sort of try to arrange oh Tim can take that person out for a beer and then try to sell them on the project for us and which he would do um, so we we, so we sort of sort of had him in, in, the, in the back corner doing that for us and uh, he was always totally supportive and then uh, and then we we had one of, one of our many versions fall apart uh, about two years ago we thought we were putting the movie together but the budget at this time was getting closer to six million and it was was, we were getting very despondent in that we had a great actor great actress and just just the way that the indie market just sort of just keeps contracting Um, I mean it's sort of this, this like weird world we're in now where they want to spend no money to make the movies, but they'll spend a fortune marketing them. <laughs> which I, 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 I think that model was sort of invented by Fox Searchlight. Which is like, okay, we'll spend six on the movie, but we'll spend 30 on the prints and ads, which is like just completely perverse to me. And, you know, because if you get famous actors to work for scale, yeah. they're still famous actors. So you can market the movie... As, 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 a, as, a, as a regular movie or even like pre-selling it for him yeah, yeah. That. But, the, but the wow. I mean, you can actually like you know buy commercials yeah. you know uh, uh, because the audience doesn't, doesn't know these famous people did it as a labor of love they just know they're seeing that familiar face showing up on Friday in a movie theater and uh, so anyway we were sort of like down to around 6 million and it was just completely demoralizing because we weren't sure we could in any version we could even figure out how to shoot the movie with all the period accoutrements for that kind of number. And it was just, it was sort of like, okay, well, this version isn't going to work. And it was just really depressing. And then this call came in about Chris, one of Christoph Waltz's agents called us. It was just a cold call. Like, have you guys ever considered Christoph in that part? You know, everyone here over at ICM has always been a big fan of your script. And we've always, you know, thought he'd be perfect for the part. And we said, well, we never thought of him because he's from Austria. (laughs) And he has that accent. And they said, no, no, no. He does a perfect American. And he said, oh, oh my God, we didn't realize that. So uh, he, he, he seemed to have like that mix of, of charm and intelligence and uh, undercurrent yeah. Yeah, of malevolence. And so we, uh, we shopped him in, uh, an email saying, what do you think of Christoph Waltz? And he said, he wrote back five minutes later, like, oh, my God, that's great. In fact, I'm going to be seeing him Saturday at the Baptist. You want me to talk to him? We thought, sure. <laughs> and they met, and then we get another email like, okay, this is great. He wants to have lunch next week, and it, I think this could be really great. And I think I think you finally got your Walter. 
And we sort of had this moment of coming to God. We said, you know what? Something bad always happens. <laughs> and it's just like, maybe we were just getting completely pessimistic, but we're going to get Chris off, and then we're going to spend six months putting this new version together with new financing and a new Margaret, and then just something, some terrible rain cloud will, will come and, and break, our, break our, our dam, and we'll get flooded, and it'll all go to hell again. And we could see that Tim was really into Kristoff. Right. And, and also Tim, Tim had approached us earlier about doing a, a smaller movie. He, we knew that Tim wanted to do another movie like Ed Wood. Yeah. Um, he's recently he's done like Alice in Wonderland. Correct. Yeah, he, wanted, he wanted a bit of a, yeah, a, a dark palette, shadows, a palette like, cleanser from these big movies. I mean, you know? I mean, he, I mean he, he's, he's, he's always grouse ever since we've known him that he's, he's been on these movies where they have the, the, the release date in the cereal box ready to go before the movie's really ready to start shooting. Right. And it's he's sort of like being kind of backed into that process and it becomes this like huge, lumbering, gigantic thing that he's in the middle of. And and the idea of sort of like doing a movie where it's more light on its feet and it's a small crew and it's a small budget and a short shoot, scooting, shooting schedule, but he gets almost like getting back to his roots. And so we knew he was into that and so we kind of... Without without telling our agents, we basically said to him, "Would you want to direct it right now?" Right. With Kristoff, and we were like, you know, we didn't, we like, we made it clear that he was the only person we were telling this to, and and we didn't want to get out because we didn't want people to think, oh, Scott and Larry don't want to direct it. Let's send it out to regular we just, directors. We knew that Tim specifically would do a great job, right? And also, we had such an amazing experience with Ed Wood, where you know, uh, Tim really changed our lives when he came on board that movie, and he he kind of famously shot our first draft. Where you know there weren't any changes, and um, uh, and and we just knew his love for the project. And Tim was very like, I, I don't do it if you don't, you know, don't feel it. And but we, we basically told him that we had so much faith in him, and uh, uh, that we were, we were very happy to step aside for him and switch places where we produce and he would direct. Um, and uh, and he said yes, and uh, Christoph jumped on board, and within a uh, next, within a week, Amy was a part of it. Within another week, the wine scenes were on board, so it all came together really really. For for a movie that took 11 years, it came together really, really quickly. Is that perfect, perfect uh, package of elements? Correct. That made it a desirable yes. project. Yeah, yeah, correct. Uh, I was curious too, as far as Tim Burton's uh, take on the material and what he brings to your screenplay that maybe you didn't even imagine on the page, music, visuals. Well, uh, uh, from for uh, what I really get from Tim in this movie is that Tim is um, Tim is a is a visual artist who uh, who is is fairly nonverbal. And I think that's one of the ways I think he went into this thing with, because Margaret Keene is a similar thing. Margaret Keene is someone who, who doesn't really have a voice and she had to kind of express herself with her canvas. And, uh, you know, those big-eyed crying children are sad because Margaret is sad. And, and Tim, I think, communicates on that same kind of level, too, where, you know, uh, instead of talking, he, he creates his art. You know, he, he lets his, his sketches or his movies speak for himself. And I think he was able to bring that sort of uh, that, that, the sympathy to the artist who is who is working, uh, which is something that I think that 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 almost you know uh, that never occurred to me because I'm not a painter, you know, and Scott's not a painter. But the you know yeah. the idea that, that I can't even draw exactly, <laughs> but the, her locked up in that room and you know just just you know creating her feelings on canvas. I think that was something that Tim could really identify. Yeah, and that incredible isolation. That Correct. She's in while she's Correct. doing this and being manipulated. I mean, I mean, we always knew. In all versions of this project, that 
we needed an actress who would be really good silent because we we knew that the movie always had to have a key number of scenes which is just Margaret alone with her paints yeah. and that was a big part of the movie but sort of what, what we got with Tim was was a guy who likes to be alone with his paints too and <laughs> and so I, I think Tim was really happy shooting those kind of scenes which is just Amy with the canvases and, and the paints yeah and so from Amy Adams uh, perspective as an actress those scenes are very tough to just oh, be silent and absolutely just no, and we're, we're so lucky that I think we, we waited and we got the, the absolute right actress for it because what Amy's able to do with the silence was, is amazing I mean, I mean I mean for us I think one of the one of the great days was, was the first set of dailies where you saw just Amy's uh, Amy's single her, her single tip where she where you could, you could just see her conveying every emotion that was necessary for the scene uh, you know just on her face where she could look at, she could look at Kristoff and it would be you know is she in love with him or she's afraid of him or she, does she think about speaking up and so you got this whole complex array just from her face and it really reminded me of you know I mean, you have to go by almost like a silent movie kind of acting, you know, The Passion of Joan of Arc or something like that, where just like this, this woman's face uh, has so much pain and, and, and is so interesting to watch. I never get tired of watching Amy's face. And, uh, uh, you know, and that, that's also one of the things I think that made it, the film was in post-production for a long time because it was one of those movies where you had to really kind of balance the fact that the guy who's speaking so much in the scene... Yeah. But you're telling it from her point of view, and so you have to like you could actually show a lot of the scene just on Margaret, and uh, that was a very interesting uh, experience. Yeah, and just you know keeping a focus on her while still observing Walter and his behavior there. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was curious uh, your your collaboration process with the director once shooting begins. Are you sort of offset? Is it just like the script is done? It's pretty much the, the script is the script is done. Yeah, the script the, is done. The, the the director takes over. I mean, what we I think one of the reasons why we really like working on these these bio movies is that we are um, we're sort of the historians, we're the journalists, kind of, and and so uh, um, we stay involved in the production because. Uh, we know we know where all the bodies are buried. We also have all the research materials. After all these years of uh, working, uh, you know, in pre-production on this Keen movie, we had tons and tons of research material. I think one of the reasons this movie was able to come together so quickly is that you know the art department. Well, we the, had prepped the movie for yeah, years. The costume department, even <laughs> even even locations could come to us, and, and and we could give them location pictures of our scout in, in well, Vancouver. I, I I feel like at a certain point I just got turned into an assistant art director. Yes, you did. Yeah, but I think you enjoyed it. You know, uh, I, I, but I mean, because recreating hundreds of paintings, and we we had so many of them on our computer, and if we didn't have them, we, we really knew got, where they were. We knew how to get to the originals because uh, all those paintings you, you had to get a high res high resolution scan of each painting, and and then uh, shoot it on a canvas and then paint onto the canvas to give it texture. And um, there was, was someone physically painting. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. If it, yeah. if it was if it was in deep background, you could get away with it just being printed on canvas. But as soon as the camera's going to get somewhat close to the painting, you would know it's phony baloney because it would look too flat. Yeah. yeah. So the art crew would have to come in and uh, and apply texture to it, and then and then if it was going to be a close up of the painting, then it would, you would actually have to sort of see the wet paint on there. Mm. And uh, and then so there was just oh my god just the. 10,000 emails between me and Chris August, the art director, in terms of like tracking all this art down, just became crazy. Also, 
There, there was a, so, like some. Do you have any originals uh, in the film? No, no. no. It's just no. it's too dangerous because if somebody just backs into the painting, you know, right? Then they wrecked it. Right. Yeah. You know, there, there's no reason to have an original on the right. set. Also, so, what uh, you forget is that most of the paintings in the film are are actually in process. That you didn't, you know, you didn't just need one copy of that painting. You needed a copy of the painting half done. A copy of the painting with just the eyes done. A copy of the painting, you know, so she could finish it on camera. And then you have that giant mural. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah the crazy. The, the tomorrow the forever. <laughs> tomorrow, the masterpiece, as we like to refer to it. Yeah. Now, now, now to, to any any uh, freak fans out there who, who want to make themselves a big pot of money, uh, the Tomorrow Forever painting, which is the World's Fair painting in the movie... Has not been seen since 1964. Nobody know. knows what happened to it. Really? And Mar- when Margaret Walter Keene passed away. There was no. Yeah. Uh, oh no, Walter yeah. didn't have anything. Walter had sold off everything. You know. I was actually oh. thinking about this today, and I'm wondering if it's just if it's just like in the UNICEF collection that, that when they took it down, they just put it in storage and they kept it. You know, the Walter had donated I, to the World's well, Fair. Margaret, or whatever. Margaret's been looking for it. Yeah. So if if, it's, if someone's uh, if someone if, finds it, they can yeah. sell it for a lot if of someone, money. Yeah. If someone goes to their grandfather's house and, and they dig around their basement and they find uh, they find Tomorrow Forever. Let us know. <laughs> I was curious uh, the house that Walter and Margaret live in. Was that built or was that an actual? That was place? that was probably yeah, the actual, hardest location for any of us to find. I mean, I mean we, we were obsessed. Or maybe I was more obsessed. Than yeah, you were. You were really obsessed. I was really obsessed. <laughs> Uh, Life magazine had spent a week with the Keens, uh, rather perversely, after they had split up, yeah. but for the sake of photo ops, Margaret, this was always like the, the, the story of Margaret Walter, Margaret had agreed to come back and do photo ops at the house with her and Jane and Walter. Walter to, had convinced her that, she, that they had to remain a professional couple. To sell product. Yeah. And uh, at, at the time we were starting this... Um, Life magazine had just made some weird deal with Google. I, I'm a little, I'm a little fuzzy on the details, but the camera rolls had just been uploaded onto the internet, and then they they, they came down kind of right after that. But like, I got on there right when it was all on the site, mm. and you could go to this GoogleLife.com site, and it was just all the raw film, and so it was just hundreds of photos of them. Hanging around this mid-century modern house, which was the, the the big house where they spent all their bucks on in the in the '60s, it was in Woodside, California, and it was it, it just really impressed me in that it was if you were if you were famous and you had some money and you want to show that you had a bit of style, this was the kind of house you would live in, which was a mid-century modern with and it had a lot of glass, and I sort of loved the idea and and it, and it was two acres, so there was a lot of green outside and there was a, a nice swimming pool. And I, I, I loved sort of the cheap visual metaphor of Margaret is a caged bird, that she's locked inside this beautiful, beautiful environment, but there's glass between her and the world outside. And she's in there painting, but she doesn't get to participate in the world out because she's made this deal with the devil, and now she's kind of a prisoner. Yeah. And I thought that was just really a great visual metaphor. And so in every version of the movie we, we tried to put together, we always would have to have a mid-century modern house with a swimming pool. And uh, what we quickly learned was that this is kind of a West Coast kind of architecture. And once you, once you start moving into Portland and Salt Lake City, and oh, now you're starting to go into tax rebate states like Louisiana... Mm-hmm. It starts getting really hard to find that house. 
And then it starts getting really hard, and we would actually have to rule out uh, some of the places where people shoot a lot of tax rebate movies because they don't have enough money to make the film. You know, you start going to Connecticut or upstate New York, well, you're not going to find you're not going to find an outdoor swimming pool because it's too cold. It's cold. And if people are wealthy enough to have a swimming pool in those places, they build the pool inside. But if you build the pool inside, it doesn't look like California anymore. Right. Yeah. And so it became this like endless quest. So when the movie ended up in Vancouver, for a, a few reasons, uh, I got very panicky saying, oh my God, how are they going to find the house? Or specifically, how are they going to find a house with a pool? And, and but building a house was probably out oh, of the budget. Yeah, no way. That we, we built nothing. I mean, every, everything was, was found or, or modified locations. I mean, there, were, there was no constru- real construction. Um, but to, to find that house, and I, and I just kept haranguing the production people in Vancouver saying, it's got to have a pool. It's got to be an outside pool. And they would say, oh, we found one in the indoor pool. It's like, no. Don't even show it to Tim. Don't let Tim see that house. Because people in California do not have in- indoor pools. It would not make any sense. And it, it was coming down to the wire. Uh, I was probably more scared than anybody. Because people in Vancouver were, were probably figuring, all right, fine, we'll, we'll settle for you know, house B. Right. But it's like, no, 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 please, please. And then someone found that house. And it was sort of a miracle. The house really wasn't big enough. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. The, the house is actually, what you see on camera is kind of what you get. I mean, I think uh, I mean, Tim Margaret was, has that line where like, oh, we have we have eight acres and we have five bedrooms, but it's pretty much what you what the rooms that we were shooting in are the rooms in the house. Yeah, I mean, when Kristen Ritter says, I couldn't believe how long that driveway was. Mm-hmm. It's well, right on the street. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the street's, you know, 15 feet away. Right, but, it, but you were able to sell it. And so, and, and the, the great thing was this way Tim was able to just... He, I mean, he shot it so cleverly. Beautifully. With, 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 with the reflection off the swimming pool and just made the house feel like that, that luxurious mansion that you kind of picture, the, you know... Uh, uh, yeah, and the so high ceilings. High ceilings really are great and the great. angles. It was all... It, it, they, the way Bruno and Tim shot it was... was that, that, was, that was a work of art, what they were doing. Was they were turning that house into in the, the quintessential mid-century modern, you know, hipster place where you could imagine Kim Novak coming over or the Peach Boys hanging out there all day long. And, then, and Tim and Bruno, you know, brilliantly figured out what, what had never occurred to... To Larry and myself, which which was that for the night scenes, uh, you could bounce lights off the pool, right, and then have the shimmery reflections on the faces of the actors, which sort of creates levels of emotion that have been visualized. Yeah, which is really cool. Yeah. He's an incredible DP. Did no, Lewin Davis uh, yeah. last he year? He did Amelie. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Lewin Davis was really interesting in the sense it's. The exact same time period as our movie, the exact same uh, just you, know, you in the sense that it's like you know in nightclubs and it's hipster the, nightclubs, hipster nightclubs um, but they look totally different. Um, I, he's he's a phenomenal DP. Yeah, I was curious about the scene uh, where Margaret is in her studio and Christoph Waltz is sort of on like a drunken stupor and he starts putting the matches through yeah. the keyhole. Yeah. Did, did uh, what? What was Margaret's memory of that scene? That actually, uh, that was, actually was that came from Margaret directly. It was took from Margaret directly. Yeah, she told us the story. Yeah, she told us directly. Uh, that it was. Um, uh, I think it might have come from an, at a different time period, uh, but it was one of those things where Walter was upset with her leaving or talking about leaving, and and was threatening her by and he threatened her by throwing matches and trying to burn the house down. And 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 to us, it sounded it sounded both really strange and also menacing at the same time. And so we just started playing with. 
with the scene and it, it, it's really you know it's really uh, it, it's funny the movie at certain points it, it becomes a thriller almost. Uh, so I was curious about uh, Milos Forman yes, uh, yes. I really love Man on the Moon it's one of my, oh, one of my favorites you. oh cool and uh, what what is his process working with him compared to Tim Burton because these are two directors that you've worked with multiple times totally different totally different they, uh, he loves to roll up his sleeves and he loves he loves to play the parts yes so he likes to act out all the parts, and then we, we have these sessions where, where he, he sits in the hotel room and he smokes, he smokes the big cigar, chains, chains, chain chain smokes, smokes and then cigar. he's performing. So, he's, so now he's Andy, and now he's Tony Clifton, and now he's George the manager, and he's performing at first, and we're for an audience of two, right. and we're watching the show, and then we're kind of taking notes, and then he'll, he might stop and say, well... I don't, I don't know if that line worked. Right. And you know what I want to say is, well, Milos, that line wasn't supposed to have a Czechoslovakian accent. Right. <laughs> but you know what's funny? We actually, we actually, uh, <laughs> we use his name as a screenwriting term almost now. We're like, what if we Milos at this thing and and and, and we discombobulate, which is means that's also so, his word. Yeah, discombobulate. <laughs> Where sometimes Milos would would come in and say. What if those last two lines of the scene were actually the first two lines of the scene? And our first reaction would be like, are you out of your mind? You could never do that. But what's, in, what's in that cigar? Yeah, what's in that cigar? And then we go, oh, wait a second. Oh, yeah, that does kind of work. That does kind of work. And so yeah. sometimes we'll be writing a scene, you know, that's he, nothing, we're writing goosebumps. We're crying out loud. We're like, well, what, if, what if we move things around and discombobulate? Yeah, like he, he doesn't, I mean, what he's fighting is the scene appearing too neat yes. and put together. Yes. And he doesn't want the audience to sense that the scene was constructed. Right. Because he, he always wants it to play as naturalism. Hmm. And so if, if, if we're the, like the clever writer boys who figured out, oh, there were the, like these three pieces of exposition we had to hide in the scene, and we figured out a very, oh, oh we're so proud of ourselves because we figured out how to, how to like build a, a two-and-a-half-page scene that, that elegantly gets all that information in there and gets you from start to finish... Milos might smell a rat and go, yeah, but anyone can see that how you guys constructed that. But like Larry said, what if what if the beginning of the scene was the end of the scene and <laughs> and, and then like we took this line from three pages earlier and we put it in the middle of your scene and and, and our initial reaction like in the old day like when the first few times he did it was what are you talking about? But then we we sort of started to understand his process. Yes. And he, he wants it to feel a little messy. Yeah, he wants he wants he wants the scenes to feel messy and alive. He wants the uh, you know he, we call it like uh, unrepeatable moments, which is what you get in life, which is sort of like just things happen naturally. So he gives uh, you know whereas Tim kind of really shoots our scenes in a very constructed manner, Milos lets the actors you know have a little bit of freedom. I mean the scenes remain basically the same, but they have a freedom to to breathe you know complete life and just go off on tangents and come back. Does he try to discover a lot in, in the editing? process yes. as well yeah 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 um, I mean, it, it's great. It's it, what's interesting about working with both these guys. Their methods are so totally different, but we get along with both of them almost equally well. And what's what's interesting is that that uh, 
uh, I think what we like most about both of them is that they they love to mix tones, which is what we really like to do. We like to mix comedy and drama together, sometimes in the same scene. And Milos is a master of that. Just think of something like like Cuckoo's Nest, where it's like hysterically funny and also tragic at the same time. And and Tim can do. I mean, there's there's so many different things going on in Big Eyes, where it goes from a love story to a comedy to a, a marital drama to a thriller. You know, and it's like whoa. Wait, if you don't like this genre, stick around. You'll, there's another one coming I, I think in a couple minutes. What's great about that is that at the end of the day, it's just about making it real. And yes, correct, it, you know, correct. Not making it a genre, correct. Comedy because genre, because genre. yeah, that's exactly right. Because the you know some of the funniest moments in your life come at come at the most tragic moments of your life. You know the old ad is that they, you know you can if you tell a joke at a funeral, you're going to get a big laugh because people are so you know with with having something horrible happen to them, they're they're, they're they they want to have humor. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was curious about the the new project you're working on, uh, the People versus O.J. Simpson, yes. which I guess is sort of a Ryan Murphy American crime story. Yes, well, we uh, we developed series. it as a miniseries uh, first, and we did, and we and we worked with Ryan. It was, it was at Fox. Yes, it was, it was a Fox ten hour miniseries, and then after we had sort of put together the Bible and the first two episodes, and we we'd had a writers room, and we had actors uh, actors, we had writers, we were sort of supervising on three more episodes. Uh, then Ryan read it and he said, "Oh wow, this could this is this could sort of be season one of this of this show. I've I, I wanted to do a show called American Crime Story, right? Which which does like a, a big famous case each year, right? And we thought that was fantastic. We thought that was a great idea. And so uh, we're working with that. And it's it's, uh, it's 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 probably the biggest canvas we've ever written, uh, worked on. Um, I don't think we would have done the O.J. Simpson. So, so so with Ryan, we moved over to FX. Yeah, correct." Uh, I don't think we would have done this as a movie because uh, doing the the, the O.J. Simpson trial as a movie, you would just would have had to hit the obvious beats. You would have had to hit the uh, the Bronco chases page ten, uh, the, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, where what's great about having ten hours uh, is that you can just go off on crazy tangents. And the the show has has our tone. It's very I would say people versus Larry Flint esque in that it's uh, you know it's taking on big issues. Uh, but it's also funny at the same time. It's also tragic. I mean, at the end of the day, you always got to remember that there are two there are two victims here. There are two dead people. Um, but uh, it, it's taking on big issues. It's uh, it's you know it's uh, it's about the birth of twenty four hour media. It's about you know the LAPD's relationship with the uh, with the black community. It's you know and it's about those lawyers. Those, those, you know these are all great parts. Johnny Cochran, Marsha Clark. Uh, it's uh, is O.J. Simpson a primary character? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He's not. He's not. Yeah, he's not. He's not. It isn't the. Some people think we're doing the O.J. Simpson we're, story. We're not, we're not really inside his head. We're right. really more inside the the head of uh, of, of the key lawyers, right. which is Marsha and and Chris and and Johnny and right. and Shapiro. I, I mean, uh, I mean, it, we we have a, a thousand million uh, books here. We're wading through, but but our our key source is Jeff Tubin's. Uh, O.J. book, the run of his life, and, and that book's thesis is, okay, the guy did it. Let's let's explore why he got off, right. and how all of the social elements surrounding the trial and surrounding Los Angeles in that time sort of came together to cause him to walk. Right. Yeah. And it's uh, uh, so far it's going great. And we just announced uh, uh, cast some casting yesterday uh, with uh, Cuba Gooding. Is going to play uh, OJ. Oh wow! Yeah. Sarah That's Paulson as, yeah. as Marsha Clark. Right. So, and, and then we, we got some, and we got some, we got some biggies that are 
Coming down the pipe. Yes. Uh, did, I just I just want to ask a question about OJ. Um, the trial. Did you go through any transcripts of the? Oh, actual absolutely. Trials? Oh, oh. it's yeah. endless. It's, it's, yeah, it's there's the the any research dialogue that you pulled like of directly. Of course. Yeah. So we we love we love pulling. You know, I mean, dialogue from trans. I, I mean, mean, we always have to massage it. Yeah, correct. So it sounds like it sounds like dialogue. I mean, uh, I mean, is, I mean, working with, with some of the other writers on some of the other episodes. Uh, I mean, we are supervising them, and this is their first time doing this kind of project, right? And they gleefully will just sort of fall into transcript world and like, oh, I, <laughs> oh, I found this really great stuff, and it's just these like these big long blocks. Of court talk will show up and we'll say, okay, that was fine. That's a nice first draft. <laughs> but now you have to make it sound like people talking in a movie. Right. Because pe- people in transcripts don't actually sound the way they need to sound when it's going to be an actor delivering dialogue. Or they can go off on tangents and really take yeah, it away. You really need to just sort of distill it down. And once again, you're, you're, you're making drama out of things, so you have to like... All right, they say this in in court, but then you got to jump, you know, a half hour and pick up that next part that actually connects and and, and makes sense. So you're actually creating a scene rather than just, you know, just watching a C-span. Um, I mean, <laughs> we uh, we um, we did this section in Big Eyes as well. I mean, the, the people can't believe it, but that 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 closing trial sequence, uh, you know, is based in reality. I mean, Walter actually was his own lawyer. And did cross-examine himself, <laughs> and you know when we would read uh, the reports from the the Honolulu papers, it just read like a Marsh Brothers movie or, or Woody Allen and Bananas. Um, uh, and so uh, you know we actually had to calm, we had to tone it down a little tiny bit because Walter was almost too absurd. Uh, but you know, so we love when you actually take the actual transcript. We did we did that in in, in Peter's Lay Flint. Which is uh, that whole soliloquy that Ed Norton does to the Supreme Court. I mean, that was looking at the Supreme Court transcripts and figuring out exactly how to massage, you know, a half-hour argument into a, you know, a five-minute speech. Yeah, no, editing that down is, you know, certainly... Uh, yeah. That, that was nice. I'm, I'm remembering on that one, Alan actually had a cassette recording. That's right. Alan, the real Alan, Alan Isaacman yeah. gave us a cassette recording of the, of the, uh, of the I, I, argument. I, I think it was he, he was allowed 30 minutes to present to the court. And, uh, did Edward Norton listen to that to sort of get into um, the... Sure. I'm assuming he did. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't, I don't yeah, yeah Ed, Ed was really in, into the research, so yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Yeah. Cool. And uh, Big Eyes opens wide on December 20th? Yes, yes. yes so it does. Not, not a limited release. Not a limited release. All over the country. I believe yeah, it is. we're getting a nice wide release. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fine picture. Take your family, take your... Take, take mom, take, take grandma. Mom, take mom. Mom and, mom and grandmas love this movie. You know, it's a... It's, uh, it really strikes a chord with moms and grandmas. Yeah, so... Um, you no, know, it's very rare to have a, a strong female protagonist correct, in a correct. You know, major motion picture. Yeah. So it, uh, it's been interesting. We've been showing it to people, and, and, and it I mean, really seems it, to be affecting women in a, in a, in a, if, in a major if, way. If, if, if Grandpa needs to come, you can bring Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> He'll stay home and watch the football game or something. <laughs> <laughs>